Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, into a deep dive into the history of Christianity. The history of the canon of the Bible, history of the early church, the early church fathers, what the Reformation was, why there were denominations, and what all happened in the history of my faith. Well, it was then that I encountered the Catholic Church. It looms large in any study of church history, and there it was. And as I began to read from actual Catholic sources about what Catholics actually believed, I realized what I thought I knew about Catholics was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast is born out of that exact idea. Each week I have a real Catholic guest talking about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. We fill in those gaps for you. Between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. That's the whole point and purpose. And this week I have on the show Michael Lofton from Reason and Theology, the very popular podcast and YouTube channel. Michael Lofton is a convert to the Catholic faith from Protestant Christianity. He actually spent some time in the Orthodox Church before coming back to communion with Rome. He's a great guest to answer the question, really for us, why not Anglican? Why not Orthodox? Why Catholic? Michael has thought these things through in great detail, great depth. He's lived the experience as well, and he's here to unpack that with us today. And I'll say this right off the bat. We're, I think, both charitable. We try to be cordial in this conversation. I think we do a good job of it, but I do want to say again to my Orthodox or Anglican friends and listeners to this program that we don't mean at any time to disparage those traditions. As Michael unpacks near the end of the show, though, if there is a deposit of truth, if there is truth that that Christ, that God wants to communicate to us, if there is an objective truth to be found in there, well, we believe, Michael and I and millions of others, that it lies there in the Catholic Church, and there are a number of reasons why. Anyway, I hope it's as cordial as I think that it is, and I really do pray that it would be received in that way. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And I have a new patron to thank this week. Thank you to Aram. Thank you for your fantastic support of this show. I, I, I can't say enough to you guys how much this means to me. That It does really help underpin and keep this show going and growing. And really, it's astounding to me that people do listen to the show and support it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Patreon.com slash Catholic to join that group of supporters over there. There are all kinds of perks you can receive. Have a look and see what those things are. And a one-time donation if you're interested at paypal.me slash Catholic. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Lofton on why not Anglican? Why not Orthodox? Why be Catholic? Please listen and enjoy.
Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Before we begin, I want to remind you, if you're listening to this on, on podcast, we are also filming for YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. Check that out if you want to see the video of these episodes. And if you're watching this, you can also just listen if you don't want to see our faces anymore. If you get tired of us, we're also on every podcast platform imaginable, so check that out. Let's get into it. I am joined this week by Michael Lofton. Michael is a graduate of Christendom College School, uh, graduate school of theology. He has a master's of arts in theological studies. He is working on a doctorate from Pontifex University. He is, of course, the host and the founder of Reason and Theology. Very popular, fantastic YouTube channel and podcast, and he's a convert to the Catholic faith. Here to unpack uh, for us this week uh, his conversion uh, story and, and experience. Uh, Michael, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, and, and hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back on. I'm a little too excited, I think. <laughs> I feel oh, like no. I feel jittery because <laughs> I I love how you on the show, you've been on here once before, and talking about the Magisterium, I'll, I'll link to that mm-hmm. uh, in the show notes as well, because that's a fantastic and very important conversation these days for those looking at the Catholic faith. But mm. this, this week, we're going to unpack your conversion uh, story. Because, uh, and and look at, I guess, why Catholicism versus mm-hmm. uh, the Orthodox faith as, as right. part of it. Because I've had a lot of uh, questions from listeners and viewers on that kind of angle, looking yeah. at, at, at leaving the Protestant faith because they, they see things that, that aren't aren't going well in, in certain cases. They run into issues of authority or issues of, of the Bible, of, of tradition. And they look to, to, I guess, the East or the West is one way of putting it, but to Catholicism mm-hmm. or to Eastern Orthodoxy. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and you've had experience in both these areas. You are a convert. You are, I think, the perfect guest to be on here to answer these questions. So <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I will promptly get out of the way and stop rambling and, and, and calm down a bit over here while you talk and, uh, and let you unpack your, your story from the, as far back as you want to go because I know you didn't begin as, as either Catholic or Orthodox. So maybe, maybe right. bring us right back to the, the beginning. How did your faith journey begin? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I appreciate you having me on to discuss this. Um, so, like you said, kind of starting there from from the beginning, prior to my experience with Catholicism and Orthodoxy, I think would be helpful. Um, you know, I was born here in the United States in Louisiana, but really early on, two years old, um, my mother and father moved us to Israel, and uh, they worked at the Christian embassy uh, as Christian missionaries. And I didn't have a whole lot of uh, exposure to Christianity, or I should say understanding of Christianity at that time. I had some exposure, but I was too young to really know what was going on. For uh, about two to four, we remained there. Uh, Only have vague recollection of it. Um, We returned to the United States when I was four, however, because my mother divorced my father, and she uh, didn't really... practice the faith after that. So I, I wasn't really uh, being brought up in the faith. Um, and around the age of seven, however, she converts to Judaism. Oh, when I was wow. seven years old. She converted to Judaism and decided to bring us back to Israel this time, just uh, her, uh, my sister and I, to Israel to raise us, uh, at, at, you know, practicing Judaism. So here I am, seven years old, 
the head of the household, uh, you know, leading the Sabbath prayers and stuff like that. So practicing Judaism um, a little bit, not not knowing what I'm doing, but hey, I was just told I have to, as the head of the household, I have to pray these prayers because I was a male. So I was the oldest male in the house, seven years old. So <laughs> I had to do all this stuff and um, had a little bit of exposure there to Judaism. But again, it, it wasn't anything by conviction and I was pretty young still. Um, we returned back to the United States again at the age of 12, but this time I moved in with my father and he was going to a charismatic non-denominational uh, church at the time. And so I really started getting an exposure to Christianity for, for the first time. I mean, I'd been briefly exposed a little bit before, but didn't really know much about it. Now I started having a, a fair amount of exposure because he's taking me to church every Sunday and I'm, I'm seeing more. So um, I ended up becoming a Christian within about a year of that or so, somewhere around there. <clears throat> Got baptized. In fact, it was December 31st that they baptized me. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, quite, quite a while back, 1996, I believe. And so became a Christian, uh, lived out the faith a little bit, but you know, once you get in your teens and all that, you start to kind of go wild. And, and, and I did, <laughs> I was no different than most of the others. So I, I started, you know, being pretty nominal and then started to have a wild side and all that. By the time I was, you know, 18, 19, I moved off to New York. In fact, I think it was 19 years old. I moved to New York City and sold my wild oats and all that stuff. And again, was not practicing Christianity. I uh, was living a pretty profligate life. And I kind of got to the point where I just hit rock bottom because uh, the, the woman I was with at the time, we had a child. This was my first child. And she had an abortion against my will. And I did not want to have an abortion, even though I wasn't religious or anything. I, I felt that um, this was a part of me and I felt that a part of me was murdered. And I, I was very hurt by that. I did everything that I could to prevent the abortion, but there were no laws. There was nothing. There was no kind of advocacy uh, center that could help uh, with my situation because father's rights simply don't matter when it comes to this issue. I was very hurt by that. It, it came on the heels of me having gone through a lot of stuff in 22 years. And then to have my child, the, the first time that I'm a father to have my child murdered, I just felt so defeated in life that I felt I, I'm done. I don't, I don't want to live anymore. I'm done. I, I've, I, it's been 22 years. It's been a nightmare of a life. I'm sick of this. And I remember praying to God. And again, I wasn't religious, but I remember saying, I'm 22 years old. I don't want to do another 22 years. I've already been through too much. I don't want to do another 22 years. So you need to do something because I'm, I'm at my end. I remember praying that. And, you know, it was shortly afterwards where I met a group of people. One of the guys, I think the story was that he uh, goes to prison for murdering a couple people, spends like 20 years there in prison. And while he's in prison, he becomes a Christian and he gets released from prison. He's really on fire for Christ. And so he has this street ministry where he's teaching people on the street about Christianity. And he gave me a Bible. And it, this was a really expensive Bible. 
it left a pretty big impression on me because first of all, I thought, wow, this guy actually doesn't know me, but he cares enough about me to give me something that he believes would help me spiritually. And number two, this is probably a 50 or $60 book. I just thought, who does that? I mean, you you would normally see people give something that's paperback out, but who gives you something that's $50, $60? So I just thought, that's interesting. Okay, well, look, this guy actually took the time to give me this. I have nothing else to do with life. I'm sick of living anyway. I might as well just read this thing, which is exactly what I did. And for the next 30 days, I read that thing cover to cover. And I was not a reader. I was not a reader because my philosophy in life was, why read a book when you can watch television? <laughs> so <laughs> I just, I read through this thing cover to cover day and night. I would on the bus to work while I'm at work on the bus back. Uh, when I get home, I, I'm, I'm eating and then I just, I'm reading the Bible until my eyes are too blurry to read anymore. And I go to sleep and I do it again. Did that for about 30 days. By the time I was done reading scripture, there was a huge change in me. There wasn't just one moment, but it was during that time. There was a really significant change in me. And I was a very different person at that time. And people noticed there was a fundamental change in my life. I'm not thinking the way that I used to think. I'm living, I'm doing different things. I have different goals now, different aspirations. Um, I'm wanting to live a good life. Uh, I was a very different person prior to reading scripture. And it really impacted me. And everybody was was pretty shocked. Um, so it was a it was a huge change for me. It left a major impact on me. I realized that there's something unique about what I just read. Um, th this has really changed me. God is real. Um, and for the first time in my life, I actually felt alive. Um, I felt joy. I felt happiness. And I had not felt these things prior to then. So I knew something serious had happened. And I can't just brush this thing to the side. I need to live this which is exactly what I, I I began to do. I began to take Christianity seriously and do the best that I can. Now, the people that I was around, that street ministry, they had very, very bad formation. They meant well. They were well-intentioned, but they had very bad formation, very wacky ideas, uh, very anti-Catholic. So really early on, I got some exposure to some pretty bad stuff, uh, wacky doctrines, and then uh, strong anti-Catholic, you know, message. So, um, I decided to move back to, to Louisiana though, because I thought, okay, I want to go back to college and learn now, uh, and get a degree and it's way cheaper in Louisiana than it is in New York. So I moved back <laughs> to Louisiana and my dad at this time was going to a Baptist church around then. And the communion that I had already been with, they were, they were non-denominational, you know, so I was looking for something like that here, but I couldn't find the exact equivalent. The closest thing was kind of this Baptist church that my dad was going to. So I just said, let me try it out. Start going to the Baptist church and, you know, continue to study the faith and learn and uh, became familiar with the Reformed tradition. Start diving into that. 
but then my wife, you know, my wife at the time, we had a, uh, a child, our first, well, it would actually be our second child because uh, she was, she was in fact the one who aborted uh, the child, but we, we moved, moved forward, moved past that. Um, and she and I were having our daughter and I had to start asking the question, well, do I have my daughter baptized or not? Do I need to have her baptized? So I have to start dealing with that issue. And I came to the conclusion that, yes, I need to have my daughter baptized. And automatically, you can't remain Baptist at the point. I mean, that's kind of the fundamental thing that Baptists are known for is not baptizing their infants. So, okay, I, I need to find something where I can now baptize my infant. And, of course, kind of having exposure to the Reformed tradition, I, I went Presbyterian at that point. Um, now, in the Presbyterian tradition, there is more of an emphasis on uh, theological formation, but there's also especially an emphasis on the formation of church history. And so for the first time, I actually started to dive into church history. Well, <laughs> wow. Well, my, my eyes were opened up tremendously and um, started reading the Apostolic Fathers. So I dove into uh, Ignatius of Antioch read all of his corpus, Polycarp, 1st Clement, 2nd Clement, Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, you know, all of Irenaeus, all, all of Justin Martyr, just read all of the Apostolic Fathers, the enti- their entire corpus, started to dive into the Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers. So I'm getting into Augustine, Ambrose, Cyril, I'm getting into Gregory of Nyssa and, and some of the Eastern Fathers. I start to venture out further than that St. Bede. Um, I even got into Anselm. And and so I'm reading all these people and I'm just thinking, I'm seeing a lot of discontinuity with my communion and the church of the first millennium. I see a lot of discontinuity here. So I'm trying to find ways to reconcile my tradition with with history, right? I don't want to just jump ship. I'm not one of those people that just, I just, I'm restless. I just got to go to another communion. No, I'm just trying to understand, okay, my faith in light of the data. So I'm contacting, you know, patristic professors in the Reformed tradition, RTS, Westminster, and others in seminaries who are professors and theologians. And I'm contacting them and asking them questions, sincerely just trying to reconcile these things. And I'm realizing, oh, wow, uh, they they don't actually appear to be as aware of uh, the first millennium as I thought. And that was very disturbing to me because they're supposed to be the experts on the patristic era. And I'm realizing they have some uh, they, they need some better formation in the father. So I, I that deeply, deeply sure. concerned yeah. me because if I can't find answers from them, I know I'm not going to find answers from, you know, others. So I, I became very disturbed. So I said, okay, well, look, the reform tradition is ultimately uh, here because of justification by faith, you know, solo scriptura, these issues. So I said, okay, well, I, I need to make sure that this is there substantially, substantially, at least in the first millennium. So I really just dove into those topics, solo scriptura, and especially justification by faith alone. And I'm trying to reconcile it with the data in the first millennium, and I'm not seeing it, but I am seeing uh, stuff that would be in favor of Catholicism or orthodoxy and things like that. So um, I realized I'm not in the right communion at this point because our, our entire communion is built on this and it's not lining up for me. So I, I do need to uh, go where the truth is. 
even though I very much personally would have rather stayed where I was at because it was a really great community and I really enjoyed it. So, but that's my feelings. Truth is pointing me elsewhere. Right. So I'm reluctantly saying, okay, fine. I gotta, I gotta go somewhere else. I gotta go where the truth is. <laughs> so I start to ask the question, well, out of these different communions that may, are doing their best to maintain the data of the first millennium. You have Anglicanism, Orthodoxy, Catholicism. So I start to look into them. One of the big strikes against Anglicanism for me was um, the women priesthood, even the more conservative Anglicans um, that I was aware of. They they either had women priests or were in communion with those who had it. And I just realized, look, this is just a liturgical novelty. I mean, I personally don't have a problem against the concept in theory, but if this is not what Christ gave to us, we, we clearly can't do this, right? So um, I, I realized, okay, this communion is ga- engaging too much in uh, novelty and there's a substantial break here in ecclesiology. So <clears throat> I, uh, I, I kind of just had to say, okay, uh, Anglicanism's not going to work. So it boils down to orthodoxy and Catholicism for me at this point. And I continue to study the issue, especially of authority, because I realized ultimately the filioque way, essence and energies, all these other discussions on original sin and toll houses and blah, 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 and purgatory, those are peripheral to the issue of ecclesiology and the papacy. So I ultimately said, okay, really need to look into this issue. And, of course, came out in favor of Catholicism. So at the end of 2011, I attend my first Mass, the first week of Advent uh, in 2011. And then uh, 2012, I was confirmed. So chose the Catholic Church. And as soon as I entered the Catholic Church, all kinds of problems hit me. Um, I had not only saw a whole bunch of scandals that I kind of already knew that were going on universally, but a lot of them began to come after me and my family. And it was a very difficult time. I, I'm not going to go into the details, but I was very hurt. I was very scandalized. Um, there were things that I had to endure that no Catholic should ever have to go through. And I will admit my experience was a lot rougher than most people's experience will ever be in the Catholic Church. I get that. You know, if I were to go into all the details, I, I had pretty rough experience when I first converted. And uh, the next five years, it, it just got worse. It got worse. It didn't let up. It got worse. And the entire time I'm just telling myself, look, the truth is here. No matter how evil people are, no matter what they do to you and your family, you, you have to stick with what Christ has given to you. But it got to the point where I couldn't even practically go to church anymore. Yeah. I couldn't practically go to any of the parishes nearby and I can't relocate. So um, I, I just got to the point where practically I'm finding myself where I can't even go to mass anymore. Not at any of these parishes, um, not where these people are, not where that priest is and what I know he's doing and what he's done to my family and blah, blah, blah. So I um, I just got to the point where I just realized practically, how, how can I be a Catholic? I want to be a Catholic. I, I believe Catholicism, but how can I live it out when I can't even go to a, a, a local mass anymore? So. Um, at that point, I said, well, maybe this is God just showing me that I made the wrong decision <laughs> and I need to reconsider orthodoxy. So that's what I started to do. I began to reconsider orthodoxy and um, I gave it a while. I mean, it was it was about two years before I actually committed myself to joining the Orthodox. So I entered into communion with the Orthodox 2017 
what, yeah, it was around 2017 because uh, I was converted in 2012. I was Catholic for about five years, but it was about looking looking into Catholicism for about two years. So I guess it was around 2015 that I start to look into Catholicism and just consider it. And then I end up making a um, my conversion 2017. And then, um, you know, while I'm there, I'm, I'm encountering some problems, some similar problems, some similar experiences, not as bad. And some of the experiences weren't that I had in Catholicism weren't there at all. Uh, but some of them were, were, were similar, right? So I'm realizing, look, no matter where I go, I'm going to encounter some pretty scandalous stuff and um, I'm going to be uh, attacked and my faith is going to be tried no matter where I go. And I'm going to have practical difficulties no matter where I am. And over time, the feelings of hurt and the pain of what had been done and what I had to go through started to finally subside enough for me to look at this objectively without that pain in yeah. any emotional response overriding my intellect. Um, I, I was able to finally just say, okay, look, let me just look at this issue um, the best that I can objectively. I had always wanted to do that, but sometimes pain and bad experiences are, are really um it can interfere with you really interpreting things properly. So finally got to the point where I was able to do that. And I just said, look, if the truth is with my current faith right now, the Eastern Orthodox church, and I'm doing my best to believe it and understand it and, and, and maintain it. If the truth is here, then it will be, uh, you know, manifest in the evidence. And so I, I'll, I need to just look into the issue of ecclesiology, especially the papacy, uh, ecumenical councils. I need to dive into the first millennium further than I've done before, deeper than I've done before. And I mean, if the truth is with orthodoxy, it'll be confirmed. If the truth is with Catholicism, that will be confirmed. Uh, but I, I began doing that. And in fact, in 2019, when I started Reason and Theology, that's part of why I started Reason and Theology is because I'm going through this process of talking to other people, working through my Orthodox faith, talking to Catholics. So I started Reason and Theology while I was still Orthodox. Um, but, you know, talking to others, having these discussions with them. And, uh, and one of the reasons why this show started is I'm having these talks with people like Eric and others. And uh, I just thought, you know, other people would probably um, benefit from watching this discussion. So let me just put it on YouTube. <laughs> let me record it, put it on YouTube. And that's kind of how the show started. Well, I'll continue to dive into the area of ecclesiology. And I'm just realizing, look, uh, as much as I personally really enjoy my experience here in the Orthodox Church, the truth seems to be pointing back to the Catholic Church. And, and I realized that no matter how I feel, no matter what my experience might be, no matter what my personal taste might be, that doesn't determine truth. Um, so I, I, I just said, okay, uh, I don't want to make any kind of rash decisions here, which I did not. I just continued to study through the issues further and further. But it was ironically the words of the Second Vatican Council from Lumen Gentium where it says, uh, you know, he can't be, you cannot be saved if you know the Catholic Church was established by Christ and you feel you fail to enter it or remain in communion with it. And objectively, I was not in communion with the Catholic Church because my bishop was not in communion with the Pope. And so uh, the words of the Second Vatican Council continued to ring in my ear, 
calling me back to full communion. And I, I got to the point where I realized, uh, again, I, I can't make a decision based on how I feel or what my experiences are. I have to go where the truth is. And it sure seems that the truth objectively is pointing to the Catholic Church. And and I'm in a very dangerous position if I continue to know this and not um, act on it. So uh, after coming to the conclusion that, yes, the what I what I had originally thought the papacy was true. Uh, after that was confirmed, I said, "Okay, I need to be reconciled to Rome." So it was late 2019, early 2020, right around there, where I was formally reconciled with Rome. By uh, you just simply go to confession, uh, confess your sins, and the um, priest will not only absolve you from your sins but lift any canonical penalties, which. You know, I had, I had incurred by leaving communion. Um, so I had the canonical penalties lifted. And uh, yeah, I've been in communion since then and learned a whole lot even since then. <laughs> it, it, just confirming, you know, yeah. my, my decision and showing me that I, I made the right decision. I still love, love the East. I uh, still love my experience that I had at the local parish uh, of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Good people, great priests. I had a good a good experience on a local level, whereas as opposed to I had a really bad experience on a local level previously with the Catholic church, but I realized it's not about that. It's about where the truth is. And so, um, you know, having continued to study the issues, I I saw that my decision was, was the right one. Uh, even though emotionally it was a difficult decision for me intellectually, it was, yeah, I made I made the right decision. So uh, that's why I tend to f- try to focus on Catholic and Orthodox content and uh, having those discussions, because I know there's a whole bunch of people who are going through what I went through and they're asking the same questions that I asked. They're coming up against the, some of the same problems. I know it because I've talked to them all the time. Um so I know there's a whole bunch of people going through it. So I thought it, it would be good to really focus on this and maybe talk not only from my experience, but, you know, from the experience of others. So I'll bring them on and have them talk about it as well. So anyways, that kind of brings us to the present. Here we are. And that's a fantastic <laughs> first half of the show. It's almost perfectly balanced here now, Michael. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. There's tons to unpack there. The first thing that occurs to me that's funny is I always thought that uh, Reason Theology was an Orthodox channel. And at some point... I realized it was Catholic and thought, wait a minute, wasn't that an Orthodox channel? Why is it Catholic now? And I couldn't figure out, but maybe this explains why. <laughs> well, you began kind of with, with that mindset in, in mind, maybe. that's. I, I, I wanted that. to have, I wanted to give both uh, communions a, 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 an even platform yeah, yeah. on my channel. So, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted the Catholics to be able to come on and explain where they're coming from. And then I wanted the Orthodox position to also explain where it's coming on. And I felt that, you know, the truth is going to win out in the end. And uh, it just kind of confirmed what I'd already uh, had seen before. And so, but uh, yeah, but that's still why I, f- I tend yeah. to focus on those, yeah, those areas. Absolutely. Well, I began, I began, I began blogging in 2014 on Pathios, uh, where I still occasionally do blog, and then this this podcast grew out of that. But I began, I actually was was hired to write for Pathios Catholic before I was even Catholic. I was still evangelical, but I was mm-hmm. journeying to the church, and they uh, Elizabeth Scaly is that word on fire now with Bishop Barron was the editor at the time and, and brought me on board to begin writing before I even was Catholic. And most of my original articles are a bit embarrassing now because they were very critical of what I was seeing as I was looking into the Catholic Church from the outside right. and wondering, well, guys, you have all this, these riches. Why aren't you acting like it? But 
I I lots to unpack in your story, but I want to begin though just touching on the the leaving of the Catholic Church because really I I am in a similar place as I think you were in a sense. I had a wonderful guest, uh, Faith Hakesley, back episode 93 of this show, who wrote a book about her experiences um, being abused by Catholic priests. And actually, um, as we unpacked her story, it turns out that her husband also knew this priest who was abusive. And the the whole story here, and I'm not going to suggest that there's abuse in your story. I don't know your story, and and that's fine. But I had an experience probably a year and a half ago now of, of... a wonderful priest who we knew as a family who uh, who really uh, it wasn't the priest who brought me into the catholic faith but he was the first priest that i knew after i became catholic and my wife uh she he was the first priest that, that she met and she converted uh under under him and his his parish and the first priest that our kids knew and and loved like he just loved loved his priest had a fantastic experience in, in his parish actually moved with him when he moved parishes because we wanted to help him uh, you know he asked us to come with him and join him in the new parish family to help him rebuild different ministries that we were already involved with and so you know this is somebody we were really invested in um was caught up in a giant scandal and is now somewhere awaiting trial at the vatican for what went on there but you know, I'd been probably a Catholic for, for four or five years at that point, Michael, and I really thought, do I leave the Catholic faith? Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew, like you, all the all the answers, the apologetic stuff. I, I'd read my way into the church. I had a thousand books over here that I'd read as it was becoming Catholic. Uh, I I'd actually had taught RCIA at the parish. Uh, I was a coordinator, the director at, at, at the time. And I honestly thought, do I... I, I know this stuff. I know the Catholic Church is true, as far as I know. But those emotions get you, right? Those experiences get you. And that becomes a real thing that, despite the head knowledge, like you, it puts you in a hard place, right? I never thought that I ever would even imagine not being Catholic after a long journey of becoming Catholic. But there I was, like truly thinking, do I just leave this and give up and 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 do something else, even though I know that this is, this is true, right? There's something at play there, right? Like that's, mm. that's tough. Oh yeah. Look, I, I get it. I, I can totally relate. Yeah. It, and that's why I can completely understand, you know, people today when they're struggling with whatever they're experiencing in the Catholic church or struggling with the crisis that they're seeing, you know, on, on the universal scale, I can completely understand. I can completely relate. Um, but ultimately, I have to call them back to reason yeah. and ask. Ultimately, you have to ask the question, where is the truth? And there has to be an objective way to identify that. And emotions, feelings, experiences, those are not objective indicators of truth. That sub- is subjective because you might be having a gr- horrible experience in the Catholic Church. The next guy might be having a great experience and d- isn't experiencing any of this. That doesn't mean that Catholicism is right I- for either reason. Yeah. Right. And doesn't even automatically mean that some other communion is right because you're, because of these things. So it doesn't logically follow. So I just try to bring those people back to reason. And if they're in a position right now where they can consider the topic with without the emotions overriding the intellect, I think the truth will win out. Some people, however, are not there yet. Some yeah. people are 
in a, an emotional state that it, it is overriding their intellect and it might be time. It might be some time before they could really hear the truth. Yeah. And really it, it can be for any number of reasons too, right? It could be the current state of the church, abuses in the church, personal experience of abuses. You don't like the current Pope. There's all kinds of reasons why people might yeah. right, emotionally right. react yeah. to something. Right. And like you say, it's reason has to, at some point went out and you have to, and at some point, you know this too, I think, through some of the work you do too on your channel, you can't reason with people sometimes until they <laughs> no. get to a certain point, right? So some people, you can't yeah. reason with yeah. them at all. There there might be something going on there intellectually. Yeah. And then other people, there, there's nothing wrong with them intellectually. It's just that right now they have uh, an emotional yeah. investment into the current position that they're in and they're just not ready to hear it. So some people I don't, I don't waste my time on. I, I, I can generally pick up where the person is coming from pretty quickly because yeah. I've been through it. So I, I, I can generally perceive whenever somebody is not really looking for the truth, they have something else that's going on overriding it. Those people aren't ready for it. It's best to just pray for them and give them some time, and eventually they'll see the, the truth. And that's why there's a lot of people who contact me, and they're thinking that, uh, you know, I'm having this horrible time in Catholicism. Um, I'm really considering Orthodoxy. Well, okay, I totally get it. I've, I've been there. Uh, let me maybe just talk to you about the papacy and let's talk about the authority <laughs> of the church in the first millennium. And if I see that they're open to that discussion, great, we'll continue this discussion. If I see that they're having an emotional reaction, well, you guys have clown masses and blah, 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 blah. And I start seeing that kind of stuff. I realize they're, they're not ready. They're yeah. not ready for that conversation. Yeah. They, they they have that emotional reaction right now going on. Yeah. I'm going to give them some time. And if they're, they come to the point where they're interested in the truth, they'll, they'll come back around. Yeah. Give them some time to just to, to let those clown masses go. Like just let's, you know. <laughs> All right. whatever the yeah. objection is, whatever they're yeah. being scandalized by, uh, it, they start throwing that out. And that is the thing overriding the conversation. Yeah. They, they might just need some time for that to die out before they, can think through this thing level-headedly. Yeah, and that takes prudence on all of our parts to to discern that, right? Like when somebody needs to it, hear something or, or it's, just relax. It's easy to spot when you've been through it. Yeah. It's, it's a little harder when you have it, yeah. but when you've been where they are and you know how they think because you thought that way before, it's pretty easy to pick up when when that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I want to back up a little bit before we get into uh, orthodoxy and, and Catholicism. And I want to look at Anglicanism for a second because you mentioned that as a as a consideration early on, and that for so many people is a is a stopping point or a consideration <laughs> early on in the journey. Right? I've had a, a large number of of Anglican priest converts on this show, Anglican converts in general, Episcopalian converts, uh, who many of them and, and many evangelicals like myself uh, who who stopped in. In, in the Anglican Church briefly and, and continued on to Rome. Very many, very famous people have rewritten their conversion stories. Thinking Thomas Howard, mm-hmm. Holly Ordway, a couple mm-hmm. of, uh, who have, who wrote a memoir about becoming Anglican and then added a chapter on the end when they became Catholic afterwards. And uh, so I just want to briefly touch on that because what you said is very interesting. And I think this is, this is relevant to discuss for a second here. What you saw was the Anglican Church being kind of equal at the beginning with, with the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy as one of those traditions that upholds the the ancient faiths. And of course, that for a lot of people is, is attractive when you're looking for the, the faith of the early church fathers. 
but you saw pretty quickly some, you said liturgical novelties. Can we unpack that for a little bit? You said women, uh, women priests, um, women bishops subsequently has been a thing. And I've actually had um, some guests on this program who were Anglican priests and kind of the, realized, well, I, this isn't working anymore, was when women began to be ordained as, as bishops, because that they saw as a clear break that really isn't anywhere in tradition. So can you unpack for us in a few minutes, like what mm, yeah, the, the yeah. novelties that you saw in the Anglican church that really just made it pretty easy to say that's, that's a no go when you're looking for that historical continuous church. Ecclesiology, yeah. uh, branch theory was one, you know, that maintains this view that, um, the church, uh, is, is basically divided into parts and Catholics have part of the truth and Orthodox have part of the truth and uh, Anglicans have part of the truth and you combine them all together and it's it's one church. I realized how novel that was in the first millennium. That is not the ecclesiology of the first millennium at all by any means. I realize that's very, very problematic. And one of the big rules of faith, of course, for the Anglicans is uh, the Vincentian canon from St. Vincent of Lorenz, which I had already read is commonatory and was familiar with and realized, well, that which has been believed always everywhere and all as far as ecclesiology doesn't at all testify to this branch theory idea. Right. More immediately, I'm seeing women priests, and that's definitely not there at all. And this, this pertains to hierarchy and structure of the church, so it's not just a peripheral issue. It's not just some kind of side novelty. It's a pretty big deal. Um, so to see that, I realized, wow, if there's that much novelty now when it comes to the very DNA of this church, the very makeup of this church, its very structure and hierarchy. If there's that much discontinuity already, um, I can imagine it's it's probably not the church Christ established if there's this much rupture. I get that there's a little bit of rupture everywhere. I get that. I get there's been development everywhere. I get that. But this seems to be a substantial rupture with the past because Christ did not give us this form of ecclesiology anywhere. And nobody is testifying to this being apostolic yeah. in the first millennium, to my knowledge. So I'm just not seeing it at all. So branch theory was a big thing for me. Women's ordination was another big thing. And then, of course, you know, this idea that um, you, you, you start to see okay, well, this tradition is especially, especially uh, from the Roman Rite tradition, and you basically had to get your liturgy, although, of course, I know it was developed, believe me, but you get your liturgy, your patrimony and all that from a church that you're not in communion with. And in some cases, the, especially the more conservative high church traditional ones they're still following the lead of rome you you can actually see yeah. uh, some of the liturgical practices you can even see some of these anglicans using the catechism of the catholic church they're they're having to follow the lead of rome and if you are you know <laughs> that's just an odd thing to do you know when when you're not in communion with them but then not only that you're not in communion with them but you're following their lead and you think that they're part of the church, but you're not in actual formal communion with them. You don't share the sacraments with each other. Uh, so th 
and and you don't have jurisdiction together. You know, you have completely separate jurisdictions, separate sacraments. That's clearly a rupture in communion. But you want to say that they make up part of the church? It just this kind of ecclesiology makes zero sense. And I'm not seeing it. It seems to be pretty novel. So sorry for the rambling, but that that's pretty much you know the my my views on Anglicanism. Oh, yeah, that's good, and that and that's succinct. And you know, I. I, I get it. I've had guests on the show that have said similar things to you, right? I mean, when you are, when you say as an Anglican priest, "Well, I'm I'm an Anglo-Catholic," I you know, and you're, and you're following the lead of Rome, and your your sacraments are mirrored after after Rome, but then Rome says, "No, you're not part of our communion." I mean, the the church you're trying to you're trying to to be, to, to, yeah. to look like says, "No, you're not part of us." I mean, you can say you're part of the branch all you want, but if that church that you're the branch. Of yeah. doesn't accept you. I yeah. mean, it, it becomes complicated. And of course, <laughs> now, of course, I mean, I have Anglican priest friends, and I've had guests in the show who said who said this too that now the novelties, now the the way the church is going, isn't even based on tradition or scripture anymore, right? So maybe at one time the idea that ordaining women as priests or as bishops, maybe at at one time there was a seed of well, we're doing this because the tradition shows that this is allowed. I mean, I mean, decisions earlier on in Anglicanism may have been based that way, but now it's it's very far afield from that. So, in that sense, to me, the church isn't even trying to follow the apostolic tradition anymore. They've really just broken away from mm-hmm. that in, in the decisions that they're making and the way doctrine is developing. It's not looking for that seed anymore. It's just going off in a whole new direction, right? Based on, you look at the the different conferences that they, they hold and the way the votes go, it's based on feelings and 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 really current trends and emerging ideas versus scripture and apostolic yeah. tradition. Right. So, I mean, now in fairness to them, the Catholic church has been doing the same thing in a sense, or at least struggling and, and having that same tendency towards uh, liberalism. There is a fundamental difference. So yeah. fu- there are several actual fundamental differences and that's why I can be Catholic um, and level this criticism against the uh, Anglicans and also level it against some in my own communion and yet still remain Catholic and yet still fault the Anglicans. There's enough distinction there, substantial differences for me to to be able to say this. But I do want to throw that out there because some people are going to say, well, y'all are dealing with all kinds of liberalism yeah. and y'all aren't looking at scripture and y'all lo- aren't looking at tradition. You're clearly trying to follow the uh, the, the the times and the way society is. And there's, there's a fair amount of uh, truth to that. But ultimately, substantially, we have not broken uh, in in the magisterium, I should say, we are teaching authority. We have not broken away uh, from the faith. Yeah. I would say that the Anglicans have done that. There has been a substantial rupture in its magis in its teaching office, I should say. Um, <clears throat> also, in our ecclesiology, we haven't had that kind of rupture that they've had. We don't have women priests. We don't have that kind of rupture. Now, if Catholics were to begin doing that and making some of the exact same uh, teachings that the Anglicans are making, now they might have a criticism, yeah. but there's a pretty fundamental difference because we don't have that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's look at, at Catholicism and, and, and Orthodoxy. As you said, lots of people contact you. I've got lots of messages here saying, hey, have somebody on the show to talk about th- these two who, who knows what they're talking about because... You leave the evangelical world, you're looking for something that's rooted in tradition, rooted in the ancient church, and really you get to this point where you go, Pope or no Pope, is really what you want to get to, right? Because it's either, I mean, the, the, the papacy is really what, uh, for, for most people, 
for most people who haven't done an enormous deep dive into into the history of the church, that's the big distinction, right? You have the Catholics who have the Pope, Orthodox who have no Pope. They look different liturgically and uh, in that sense, but really that's the big distinction. So walk us through, let's, let's begin, why, why for you was, did you see in, I guess, mm. the, the early church, in, in the, the history of the church, the Pope as the thing that we should be heading to? Yeah, that's ultimately where, what it boils down to. Yeah. Because some people want to get caught up in peripheral doctrinal disputes. The filioque, yeah. essence and energies, original sin, um, <clears throat> um, purgatory, immaculate conception, those are all peripheral and they all hinge on authority. Yeah. All of those ultimately, whatever case you can make for them biblically and traditionally, ultimately, if we're going to use equal weights and equal measures, it boils down to an issue of authority. So that's ultimately where we need to have a discussion. And of course, there's a lot of similarity that we have with the Orthodox when it comes to authority, right? We we both have bishops and stuff like that. So um, <clears throat> we we both, even though they don't realize it, we tend to understand uh, ecclesiology on the level of the bishop um, substantially the same, <clears throat> though they would argue differently. So we have a whole lot of in- things in common there when it comes to authority. What makes us substantially different, though, when it comes to the authority discussion is the papacy. Yeah. And there's some things that we can agree on with the Orthodox when it comes to the papacy. It also depends on which Orthodox, because they don't have one consistent view when it comes to papacy or primacy or the first primate, the first in the church. They don't have a consistent, consistent position here. We do have an official position. Now, we have people in our church who dissent from that official position. But there's a big difference between dissenting from an official position and not having an official position and then fighting between each other on what the position should be. There's a fundamental difference between the two. And then there's a fundamental difference between the communion that can make an official position and the communion that is unable to make an official position. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a fundamental difference there as well. So... And this is why currently the Orthodox have this major schism right now between Constantinople and Russia and other churches uh, in communion with each other. Uh, this is why you have this major rupture right now in Orthodoxy, because they're debating this very topic, the issue of primacy. They don't have a, an official position, and it is substantially different. And they don't have a mechanism, an objective mechanism that can um, solve the difference. They don't have something they can arbitrate in this debate between themselves and they can then issue and declare an official position. And some Orthodox would say, well, it's an ecumenical council, but okay, but what constitutes an ecumenical council? It's putting the cart before the horse. You have to have something that would be able to uh, now objectively identify what ecumenical council is to settle this issue. They don't have that. So you're right to note it ultimately boils down to the papacy and what role does the Pope have in relation to other bishops, especially in relation to councils of bishops? And what role did he have in the first millennium? And which which, uh, ecclesiastical model or model of ecclesiology 
today best fits that data in the first millennium? So a much tougher question for the Orthodox because, again, they don't have an official ecclesiology. So right. you, you now have to start to figure out, well, which one of these? All right, well, um, <clears throat> with the Catholics, however, what I noticed in the first millennium when it comes to the papacy, I noticed that there were some in the first millennium that maintained some of the different ecclesiologies of the Orthodox today when it comes to primacy and the first uh, the first bishop, if you will. I noticed that the the some of the Orthodox uh, views are there in the first millennium. I've noticed that. So they, they can make a historical claim for their positions, some of them. Um, <clears throat> but then again, I also noticed the Catholics can make a claim for uh, our position in ecclesiology in the first millennium, right? Uh, so now the question is, well, which which ecclesiology is most testified to, is more consistent, is most logically coherent? Uh, those are the questions that I'm asking. What's interesting is that <clears throat> you start to come across fathers, even popes in the first millennium that are testifying to the Catholic understanding of papacy and ecclesiology. And these are people who are saints in the Orthodox communions. Interesting. So it starts to get awkward. Now, we in the Catholic Church have some oddballs here and there. <laughs> so we, we have some, some saints that weren't even formally in communion with Rome, though they're saints. We have some that maintained some things that later on were condemned as heretical, although at the time they were heretical. We all have that. Everybody has that in their communion, right? So we, we all have that. But what I noticed is the Orthodox have this to a way greater degree than we do, way greater degree, especially in this matter of the papacy. It's odd that quite a few popes that they have as saints, quite a few of their bishops and theologians that are saints in the first millennium, explicitly maintained something that is substantially against their understanding of the papacy and ecclesiology. More concerning is that these views were not only just expressed by some of their saints who happened to be sometimes popes or happened to be bishops or theologians. Awkwardly, these were also expressed at some of the ecumenical councils in the first millennium that they maintain. It's a very awkward yeah. thing. And now you start to have theologians like Meindorf, Father Meindorf, who they recognize this. And they have to give an answer. I mean, hey, our actual ecumenical councils, you got fathers at the councils that are affirming the papal view. And it's substantially different than our view. And it does organically lead to Vatican I. It does lead organically to the Catholic position. And it does organically go against our positions in our ecclesiologies. So they got to figure out, well, how do we make sense of this? And the answers that I've seen have been horrible, have been terrible. And it goes to show how inconsistent I think the Orthodox positions are when it comes to the first millennium. What I, I mean, I, I did a show the other day on Father Meindorf, who goes over some of this data. He goes over um, some of the things outside of the ecumenical councils, perhaps uh, Pope Hormizdus and his um, his. Um, 
his actual document that he required many Eastern bishops to sign it if they wanted to come back into communion. It's called the Formula of, of Hermisdus. He goes over that. He goes over some of the things said at the ecumenical councils from Philip the Legate. Uh, to Agatho, to the Seventh Council, and others. And <clears throat> he goes over some of the things said there that are definitely in favor of the papal view. And he tries to just say, well, you know, what, what effectively is going on here is that they were just being gratuitous at the time. They really needed the assistance of the papacy at the time of blah, 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 blah. There. You can go and watch the video where I break it apart and show why that that doesn't work and it's problematic. But I started coming really across this kind of stuff, and it just reconfirmed my notion that, uh, well, if we're going to be consistent with the first millennium, it seems that the Catholic Church is, is going to be the most consistent here. Um, that's just that's just one thing that I noticed. I start to notice other other things as well, but I think that's one of the most important. Uh, as far as the papacy. So I hope that answers your, your question. I didn't ramble too much there. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> what, what strikes me, first of all, is the idea, the idea that there's no no clear single reason why they reject the Pope. That's kind of what you said, I think. They're, that, that, similar to, I think, the Protestant position, right? There's no clear, there's no single Protestant position on why the Pope is 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 wrong you could ask you get all different answers from different protestants right is this a similar thing with the with the orthodox there's no well, single reason or single I explanation think, for i think they agree on why they reject the pope but they aren't in agreement with each other on what role does the next in line in the church which they would say is constantinople what role does that uh first in the church now have for the eastern orthodox that's where they have a difference but i think they would be in agreement on why they reject the papacy yeah. Uh, which is going to be <clears throat> number one. <clears throat> they don't believe that another bishop can interfere in the jurisdiction of of a of a bishop. They don't believe that. Uh, that's going to be problematic when they come across some aspects of the first millennium. However, so that that's one of the reasons. Another reason is they believe that the position that Rome had in the first millennium. Uh, was not due to some divine institution, which is what Catholics claim, but was just due to its position in the empire, the fact that many of the early popes were martyrs, the fact that Peter and Paul died in Rome and established the Church of Rome. So they see these circumstantial arguments that, that lend to the prominence of the papacy, but they would say this is not a divine institution, so it can fail. The Patriarch of Rome can fail. It's not an indefectible see, which is what we would claim. Uh, they would they would say this isn't divinely guaranteed, so it can fail. And they would say has failed, especially in the area of the filioque, blah, blah, blah. And they use that as their reason for not being in communion with the Pope. I think there would be an agreement on those things. And I went and did a video recently responding to those uh, arguments. I call them the circumstantial arguments where they say, this is why Rome had its position at the first millennium. And I, and I go and break it down and, and explain why um, this is not a, in, this is not a negative for Catholics, but it is a negative for the Orthodox. So we can digest 
everything that they just said, we can digest about it's uh, Rome having prominence due to its seat in the empire. We can accept that. We can accept uh, Rome was venerated because of the early, early popes were martyrs. We can accept that. We can accept that Rome was venerated because it was established by Peter and Paul. We can accept that. That all helps us understand how it organically grew. But none of that takes away from the fact that Christ established this uh, church with Peter and that that was then handed on uh, to successors in Rome and that Rome is the unique possessor of certain privileges and claims. It doesn't, those things don't negate that. They just go to show, well, this is how it developed. In other words, Christ deposited this seed and what the Orthodox are doing is they're just showing, well, here's how the seed grew. Yeah, that is how the seed grew. I agree with that. Yeah. But the question is, did Christ actually plant that seed? Right. That's the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where did that seed come from? Was it planted by Christ or not? Now, the first millennium is going to testify over and over, even at the ecumenical councils. And many of your saints are going to testify that seed was planted by Christ. Therefore, it's a divine institution. And if it is a divine institution, it cannot fail. And then they also testify to its indefectibility. So it just makes sense of the data, whereas they they can't make sense of this claim that the papacy is a divine institution established by Christ. They can't accept that in their ecclesiology, because if that's the case, they're not in communion with something established by Christ. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So they have to reject that proposition. So they then have to reject quite a few things at the uh, ecumenical councils. Uh, said by saints and popes and quite a few things there in the first millennium. So again, the the Catholic perspective makes much more sense of the data that we see there. The Orthodox, I think, fail at that. Not only that, I don't think that this ultimately is just between Catholics and Orthodox. Often overlooked are the Oriental Orthodox. So just because, may, let, let's just pretend for a moment that Catholics are right. Uh, I'm sorry, that, are, that Catholics are wrong. Let's just <laughs> pretend for a moment Catholics are wrong. That doesn't automatically make, make Eastern Orthodox right. We still need to go and look into Oriental Orthodoxy. So in other words, what a lot of these Orthodox do is they try to depend on this argument that if they can just show you why uh, Catholicism is wrong, that somehow proves Orthodoxy. It doesn't. It doesn't logically follow. They actually need to make a positive case. And what you'll notice with Orthodox is they're very good at criticizing Catholicism and explaining why it's wrong. They're terrible at explaining why Eastern Orthodoxy is right in relation to Oriental Orthodoxy and other communions of that sort. So they're very bad at being able to make an affirmative case. They're just really good at being able to criticize some things. That's all. Yeah, that's really interesting too. The negative position versus yeah, why why we're the choice over this. That's really interesting. As I understand it, and this is very interesting to, to hear from you too. The Orthodox would affirm a number of of church councils that we as Catholics would affirm up to a point, right? Sure. But what you're saying too, even more interesting, is that even at those councils that they affirm. There's mm-hmm. things being said, being expressed yeah. that really would lend themselves to affirming yes. a papacy, which the Orthodox, really, that's what divides us. They say no, no to the Pope. But some of these councils that they affirm, there's things in those councils, people at those councils that, that speak that are speaking in favor of what would become very well-defined papacy that, that exists, right? 
And the more educated Orthodox recognize that. Right. So your father, Mayendors and Florovskis and the, the more educated ones, the reactionaries, the lowbrow ones, they just think that there's nothing there. But they're generally ones that haven't read a whole lot and studied the, the first millennium very well. The more educated ones recognize the problem here. They, they try to uh, resolve this tension, but everything I've seen is it's almost comical the the solutions i'm trying to be respectful because i really do respect some of these guys some of these theologians and bishops they're good people and they're extremely well educated but it, it's just almost laughable some of the solutions that they posit to try to make sense of the cognitive dissonance and so it's just i i think that speaks against it right there is it, it just seems very unreasonable but yeah they do have ways that they try to resolve some of these things none of them are consistent None of them are consistent. None of them actually do very do justice to the material. Um, and I think that's a mark that it's not the truth. If it's inconsistent elsewhere and it's not consistent with other things that the what the individual would profess elsewhere, it's probably not a mark of the truth. It's probably not a good argument. Well, and, and again, you mentioned too, I think important to underscore the idea of the lack of a mechanism to make these decisions, right? As, as it, I understand it, right? I mean, if the Orthodox Church is really based around these ecumenical councils, but, and I looked into Orthodoxy briefly on my journey. I looked into Anglican Church, Orthodox Church became Catholic. I have good friends who are Orthodox, who I, who I love. They love their faith. My, my struggle with that was it, it, it didn't seem to solve the problem I had yeah. of authority. Because, right, I was an evangelical who was looking for where's that authority that Christ established, and when I looked at the Orthodox Church, what I saw was was a beautiful liturgy, very yeah, compelling liturgy. I, I I loved the tradition, but it didn't seem for me to to have, like you say, a mechanism to resolve those disputes of authority. And you're seeing that, as you said, play out today with the divisions amongst Orthodox communions. Can yeah. you unpack that for a bit? A bit more for us, sure. that idea of the lack of a mechanism to make decisions. Yeah, and, and by the way, I'm glad you brought up the liturgy because I, I do want to throw a bone to the Orthodox and say they've done a better job at preserving the yeah. liturgy and their tradition than we have ours. So yeah. there, there is something to be said there. Um, and that's to our shame. <clears throat> I don't think that that substantially disproves any in our position and substantially proves either way, but it does definitely go in their favor. And that's one of the main reasons why people are attracted to orthodoxy is because they see that and then they see how devastated our liturgy can sometimes be. Problem is you will run into some of these liturgical abuses and novelties now in uh, some of the uh, orthodox churches here in the West too. So you're, you're starting to see these same issues there. I mean, female altar service is a perfect example. So... Okay, well, let's uh, let's talk about this issue of mechanisms. So, if you look at Florovsky, uh, Bishop Hilarion, and, and quite a few others, they're going to readily admit they do not have an objective way to identify what is an ecumenical council. Therefore, they don't have an objective way to determine what is dogmatic, what is to be believed by the faithful. They don't have an objective way. They'll readily admit that. They will admit that. Most of them, most of them will. Some of them still try to actually maintain that there's an objective mechanism. It doesn't, it, it tends to not work. Bishop Callistus Ware did a really good video a while back where he reviewed the different theories and showed how they're all inconsistent. And they all, they don't make sense of the first seven ecumenical councils consistently. So none of those are good solutions. 
and he just leaves you thinking, well, okay, so <laughs> why, why should I be Orthodox again? But anyways, uh, they will readily admit, some of them even pride themselves on the fact that we don't have this objective way to determine truth like those nasty Latins, and they're trying to just get everything all figured out, and you can't put God in a box, yeah. and that they'll pride themselves on this idea that, yeah, we don't have a consistent way. God, you know, God's above consistency and logic and reason. And God will just, in, you know, immediately communicate the truth to you and blah, blah, blah. So I, I think we realize the absurdity of, of this position. They'll admit that. Uh, they will admit the lack of a, an, um, an objective mechanism. What some will try to do to get around that is they'll they'll try to say, well, Catholics don't have an objective mechanism either, so we're all in the same boat. Um, they're generally people who don't know how the magisterium works very well, um, including those names that I mentioned, Florovsky and others, um, which is not necessarily their fault because we haven't always done a very good way at explaining our understanding of the magisterium anyway, so it's not really their fault. Um, so th what they generally will try to do is say we're all in the same boat. So what uh, they might posit is reception over a long period of time. If a particular counsel is received over a long period of time or if a particular counsel is received by your synod, then it's authoritative for you and blah, blah, blah. Uh, some will just try to say the Holy Spirit just spontaneously leads his church in, into the truth and will just spontaneously uh, lead people to recognize that this particular counsel, what it said was true and is authoritative. That sounds really nice, but that's also what a Mormon could say. Yeah, a Protestant yeah, yeah, could yeah. say that um, I can make up church today, like literally right now. We, we can do this on yeah, this show. Yeah, we can make up a church right now, a and we can make that same claim. And I can start making up doctrines here and there. I can just start making up doctrines right now and say, "Well, the Holy Spirit is guiding me to, and He's enabled me to recognize this truth." And I can get others to believe it, and 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 I can just say, "See, the Holy Spirit is showing them also that this is true," and and. Everybody can make that claim. That's not anything objective. And, and they have to admit, yeah, it's not objective. We just admitted there is no objective mechanism. Okay, well, thank you for offering me something that's objectively no better than Protestantism or yeah, Mormonism. Yeah. I, I need something more objective than that. I need an objective way to identify what Christ has handed down to us. And I am able to find something consistent in the Catholic Church. I am able to find objective indicators to determine what is authoritatively taught, to determine what is an ecumenical council, despite what they say on how we can't do that. I'm able to see it. And generally in those conversations with the people who say that it's not there, I generally tend to um, know, know more about the magisterium than they tend to know. And so that just goes to show that, okay, well, um, they're making this because they're just not very well aware of what we actually believe. That's the impression that I have in the conversation. So I hope that helps answer the question. Yeah, I think that does. That's kind of what I was, I'm, it's affirming for me, because that's what I experienced when I was looking into these different these different options. It really just moved that, it, it moved the, the issue of authority a little bit down, you know, it kicked the puck ahead a little bit more, the ball ahead a little bit more, but yeah. still at some point, I I kind of went well. Where where is the authority? Like, if there if a new issue comes up, if we have to decide on a new thing, for all of the Orthodox Church, how how is that done? And I saw no way in in history, no way in consensus at the time when I was looking into the Orthodox faith 
of that being able to to be done. And then I looked at at Rome and saw this the, the Pope and the Magisterium and this as a mechanism that seemed to be what would make sense for Christ to establish and 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 develop over time. But that made a lot more sense to me looking at again, you say the evidence, looking at the, the data, that made more sense. And, and they're going to try to say, you don't have that. They're going to try to say, um, you're just kicking the can further down the road, but ultimately you don't have that because what they'll try to say is they'll, um, they'll know, well, you, you have to interpret the Pope, right? The Pope could say something, but then you have to go and interpret him or you have to interpret this ecumenical council. So you don't have an objective way to identify these teachings. Is it infallible? Is it not? You have to interpret those things. So the book doesn't stop with the papacy. It stops with you as an individual. They'll try to say that you're in the same boat because of that. The, there's several ways to respond to that. Uh, but the the number one way is, we can always go to the Pope and ask for further clarification. Yeah. We can always go to councils and ask for further clarification until it becomes so painfully obvious what they're affirming, right? Yeah. If Pope says, I decree, define, and teach, blah, 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 blah. And if it's maybe unclear, well, was this infallible? And what does blah, 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 blah mean? We can go and ask the magisterium itself because we currently have a living magisterium. We can go and ask them, is this what you meant? Was this definitively taught? Um, and then they can res- the, the magisterium can respond either in the form of the papacy or an ecumenical council. They can respond. And then if that's still unclear, we can always go back until it becomes, and we can repeat the process until it becomes so painfully obvious that it's absurd to now continue to question the matter. Yeah. Unless you're going to say it's impossible to ever come to a knowledge of anything. Right, which which is in and of itself absurd. So you would have to say there are objective ways to know something and to understand language and things like that. So um, if if you're going to recognize that, if you're going to be a reasonable person, well, we can always just do that with the papacy and the councils. They can't do that, right? Yeah. So it it's we can criticize them for this. They can't cr- actually criticize us for this because there are objective ways that we can get enough clarity to know. What does the church definitively teach? So the question is, um, yes, we might have an objective mechanism now, whereas they don't. That's kind of the, that's where we're at at this moment. Yeah, We can say that, yes, we have an objective mechanism. You don't. Now the question is, is the objective mechanism that we have something instituted by Christ? Just because we have an objective mechanism doesn't mean that it actually came from Christ. It could just be a human institution that works really well. Yeah. It could be that. Um, So how do we know that this is actually something established by Christ? Well, you start to go to the first millennium and and it is clear enough that this is being attested to, that there is something established by Christ uh, in in the papacy. There are unique privileges there. Uh, There is a way for the church in the papacy and even in councils to give an an authoritative and definitive teaching and, and so on. So we see it matching up with the data there in the first millennium. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I hope that helps. Oh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh, this has been really fun. I mean, we could talk for hours about this, I'm sure, and you do on your on your channel. Yeah. So, of course, if people <laughs> who are listening, who are watching, haven't haven't seen you, I'll put links, of course, in the show notes uh, to your fantastic YouTube channel and podcast Thank as you. well, because there's, there's much more of, of this on there. I wonder if you can just, in closing, I'm just thinking of that person that's at the crossroads there, like I was, like you were looking at 
you know, they know they need to leave their current faith tradition, whether it's evangelical, Protestant, whatever, reformed, whatever it might be, because the issue of authority is there, and they're struggling mm-hmm. to find, figure out where that properly lays lies. Mm-hmm. And they have the Orthodox here, they have the Catholic Church here. What would you say to that person, you know, in a nutshell, just to 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 prompt them to look towards what we have both found in, in the Catholic mm. church to be where the church that Christ founded. What would you say to a person like that? Yeah. Pe- people are struggling with, you know, should they leave their, their communion or not? They are. It's, it's a very tough one um, because of course it, it's, it's going to be different with, which with each person in each situation, but just generally speaking, just some generic advice here. Um, I think we can all agree. Uh, hopefully we can all agree that there is such thing as objective truth. Uh, I would hope that we can all agree that God wants us to know this objective truth. And I think that we would hope that we would all agree that God has communicated objective truth with us. Okay. So, and and then I imagine most of these people that we're talking about are already Christians. So we, we don't need to work through the proofs on, on uh, bringing this to a Christian conversation. I think we're already starting there. So I'll start from that point. Since I think that we can all agree that there is something as objective truth, we can know it and God has communicated it and it's in the Christian tradition. We need to ask what is best consistent with the information that we see there in the early church. What, what shows continuity? Uh, what can be traced back to the apostles? Um, it, I would I would think that if God has communicated truth and he wants us to know it, he would have preserved it and he would make it uh, available in a way that could be objectively known, not just something subjectively. Because if it's just subjectively known, I mean, um, you, you could be deceiving yourselves, right? There's there's really no way to test this by. But of course, Scripture itself tells us to test the spirits and test these things. So there has to be something objective to test them by. Well, What is there that is out there that is an objective way to determine truth that does go back to the apostles, that is knowable? I only see one thing there. I I only see one game in town. If you can come and give me something else, okay, maybe we can have a conversation. But I only see one game in town. So, and I think I've already explained what it is. So, at that point, I would say, well, if that is where the truth is, you have an obligation to be there, right? Because if if this is where the fullness of the faith is, and this is the institution of Christ, for you to still remain apart from it, there's a very real sense in which you're still saying no to Christ and you're remaining apart from Christ. And I don't think people who are even asking this question would want to be, you know, away yeah. from Christ. They want to be with him. So I think we know the right thing to do then would be to be in communion with that church. So that that's the best generic advice that I could offer. Well said, well said. Uh, Michael Lofton, this has been fantastic. I almost said Mr. Lofton. That's very formal. This has been been a fantastic conversation. Where do you want to point people towards if they've been, had their head buried in the sand and haven't seen you or heard you before, where should they go to find more of, of this kind of content? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think it would be good to go to YouTube. Just type in Reason and Theology. You'll see the show come up there. Um, or just go to reasonandtheology.com and, and you'll be directed to the website as well through 
through there. And you'll also see articles and podcasts and stuff like that there. So. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic stuff. Listen, I want to say thank you for being here. I want to, God bless you and the fantastic thank work you. you're doing for the church. It's, it's phenomenal. And uh, truly thank you for this great conversation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. It was an honor. Well, thank you, friends, for listening to that episode with Michael Lofton. I think it was fantastic. Again, I really do hope that it came across as cordial. It's the whole point and purpose of this thing. I think we did a good job expressing our, our, our views. It's always hard to say, no, I'm, I'm not this thing, but I but I am this thing without offending people on the first thing. So I do hope that Anglican Orthodox listeners to this show really understand the, the reasons why we both have and we express our reasons for being Catholic. And I really hope that came across in, in the way we intended it to. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website, CordialCatholic on Twitter, on Instagram, YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic to watch this episode, of course. Uh, and do email me, CordialCatholic at gmail.com. I get all kinds of emails. I write back to them as soon as I can. But I do love hearing from you guys where you are, where you're listening from, what your purpose in listening is, and, and to experience that journey with you. I love to meet new people on the road and to answer and, and help us as best I can. So thanks for reaching out. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic to support this show financially. $5 or more a month patrons are automatically entered into a draw for free books every single month. And there's all kinds of extra perks as well. Early access, behind the scenes, that kind of stuff too. We have a new newsletter at newsletter.com slash thecordialcatholic. No? Newsletter.thecordialcatholic.com the slash come from check that out too for weekly emails about the show behind the scenes stuff too and guys thank you for listening do pray for me know that i'm praying for you too and i'll talk to you again next week take care thank you stay safe and god bless This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.